So we're in Malachi chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. And uh, a little bit of background, because I understand, I, I, I can look out here, I can see some of you guys weren't here last week, or you haven't been here before, and I, I don't want to drop you into uh, uh, the story without having any understanding. So I'll give you a little bit of a background before we start unpacking the text. Tonight is kind of a, a part two uh, from last week's sermon, verses 1 to 4, and I'll do my best to tie uh, these pieces together. 586 B.C. 586 B.C. God raises up Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to execute his judgment on his people because of their wickedness. They come in 586, they lay siege to Jerusalem, they destroy it and the temple. It was the third of four deportations that took place. And they marched back the captives to Babylon in 586. When we fast forward, 576, 566, 556, 546, 540, 539, there is a new superpower the Persian Empire is at its height. In 539, Cyrus and the Persians, they overthrow the Babylonians, establishing themselves as the new superpower. And a year after doing this, in 538, Cyrus, the leader of the Persians, issues a law allowing the people of Judah, those who want to, may return home. One would think that upon returning home, the very first thing they would do is to begin to rebuild the temple, a center of worship for the people of God, considering why they found themselves in Babylonian captivity in the first place. But they don't. They neglect their responsibilities. They neglect their love for the Lord, of which they, oh, by the way, are claiming. They make excuses. And so in 520 B.C., God sends Haggai, his servant, to come to preach a series of sermons calling upon the people to repent, calling upon the people to rebuild the temple. They do. They respond positively to Haggai's sermons, and in 516, the temple is rebuilt. We fast forward. 45 BC, Xerxes is now the supreme leader of Persia, and he begins a new taxation of all the non-ethnic Persian entities. As the empire expands, so do the need for resources. So non-ethnic Persian entities, that is, the provinces, are to carry the burden of this need. And Judah felt this more so than many others. In the fifth chapter of Nehemiah, he recounts the challenges and struggles of the people. Inflation at an unprecedented level. Debt slavery at an unprecedented level. The confiscation and seizure of private property. Famine, starvation. Things are difficult for the people of Judah. They've got a lot going on, as I'm sure you all have a lot going on. And their zeal for the Lord begins to wane. Spiritual apathy begins to set in. And by 460 B.C., Haggai and his sermon is but an afterthought. So God sends Malachi. In verses 1 to 5 of chapter 1, he reminds the people of his great love for them. 
Not just His great love, His undeserving, electing love of them. In verses 6 to 14, He brings a series of charges, indictments of how the people are majorly dropping the ball. They are failing to honor God. They are showing more honor, more awe, more respect to earthly relationships than they are to their heavenly relationship. They call it worship, but in reality, all it is is religious activity. And so, in chapter 2, 1-4 to last week, he says, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, then things are going to go very poorly for you. Not because I'm some vindictive, cruel God, but because I love you too much to let you get away with this. Like a father who lovingly disciplines his children. So will I, if you do not listen, if you do not take my words to heart. Verse 5, chapter 2. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. This covenant. You say, all right, well, what, what covenant? Well, it's the covenant he just mentioned in verse 4. The previous verse, he says it's the covenant of Levi. That's the covenant that he's re- referring to here in verse 5. Oh, okay, gotcha. Covenant with Levi. Wait, what's that all about? Well, for those of you who are here, you may or may not remember, but this is what it's all about. Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had a son. His name was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of his sons, his name was Levi. Also had a son named Joseph, too. Everybody knows about Joseph. Coat of many colors, sold into Egyptian slavery. I got that. Uh, Levi, Joseph, brothers. Okay, tracking with me? Good. So they're brothers, And and Levi has a special relationship that's been formed between God and his descendants, which is interesting because he's not exactly an upstanding citizen. He's kind of a ruthless guy, this guy Levi. In Genesis chapter 34, we see a little bit of this ruthless side of Levi. The 12 boys, Jacob's sons, their sister Dinah, she goes out with this guy named Shechem, Canaanite prince, takes advantage of her, rapes her. Then he says, oh, by the way, I want to marry her. Well, what's that all about? But the boys say, all right, tell you what, listen, you can marry her, but you need to get circumcised. Not just you, but you and your entire village need to get circumcised. He agrees to it. But Levi, and especially his brother Simeon, have absolutely no plan to allow this marriage to go through. So while the men of the village have just been circumcised while they are recuperating from this operation. They go in and they slaughter every single man in there. They kill every one of them. Now, there were others involved, but Reuben, excuse me, Simeon and Levi, they were the ringleaders of this. They have failed to remember God's words that vengeance is mine. It belongs to God. And so, because of their bloodthirsty desire for revenge, God curses them with landlessness. By Joshua chapter 19, 9, the tribe of Simeon is absorbed into Judah. But Levi has a comeback of sorts. 400 plus years later, the people, they've just come out of Egypt, out of slavery. 
There Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai, receives the Ten Commandments from the Lord. The people at the bottom think, ah, he's not coming back. Let's build a golden calf. Let's start worshiping it right now. And so they do. Moses comes down. He's a little bit upset. He calls on the people, those who are with him, those who love God, to rally with him right now. Well, Levi's descendants rally with Moses. They stand for what is right. And Moses assures them that God will bless them for that. But that is not the first mention of this Levitical covenant. It comes a little bit later on. Moses' brother is Aaron. Often we see Aaron as displayed as the very first priest. And those from the tribe of Levi, from the clan of Aaron, as this priestly line. But it was Aaron's grandson, Phinehas, who we see this first mention of this Levitical covenant in the 25th chapter of Numbers, starting in verse 11, 12, and 13. There is a second wilderness-type situation that happens. The people begin worshiping the Canaanite god of the storm, Baal, and indulging in just disgusting, gross sexual immorality. And it is Phineas who carries the day. Numbers chapter 25, verse 11. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, so Aaron's grandson, the priest has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. And I want to clarify, when Scripture speaks of jealousy, it's not as we think of envy. As one commentator, I think, in a very uh, adequate way, explains this jealousy, it is God's determination to preserve from corruption his relationship with his wayward people. It is just another part of his love. And it was this zeal, this jealousy, this righteous jealousy that Phineas was commended for because he acted with that same type of zeal to defend and preserve from corruption God's relationship with his wayward people. That was the kind of zeal, that was the kind of attitude that the Lord was looking for from the priest of Malachi's day who are seriously dropping the ball. It is the same type of zeal, the same type of attitude that he is looking for from his people, from the church. This is the covenant that he's referring to in verse 5 that's connected with verse 4. My covenant with him. With who? With Levi. What's that about? We just read it. My covenant with him, back to verse 5, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. He gave this special relationship to Levi's descendants, and he expected fear. He expected honor. He expected awe. But that's not the case here. As we saw back in chapter 1, verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then, am I, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? 
You show more honor. You show more fear. You show more, more awe for earthly relationships than you do for me. Does anybody have a problem with that? But your ancestors, they were different. Or do you not realize, the priest of Malachi's day, do you not realize, church, that we live every moment of every day in the presence of God? It's not just when you do religious things. It's not just when you come to church. It's not just when you open the Bible. It's not just when you pray. I hang out with soldiers a lot. For those who don't know, I'm an Army Reserve chaplain. I hang out with soldiers a lot, and it's always funny how they act. You know, we'll be talking, and we'll just be, I'll be hanging out, talking with them, because that's a lot of what I do. I hang out and talk to soldiers. I get to know them. And they'll be like, oh, S, or oh, F. And they're not saying the letter, okay? And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, chaplain. Or, you know, at church, it's like, oh, oh man, it's a church. You can't say that. Like, in their mind, they think, I'm in the presence of God if I'm around, like, a pastor, chaplain, or if I'm at church. But other than that, no, I'm not. He's not there. I think a lot of it comes from a, illiterate understanding of who our God is. Like, he's everywhere! That's pretty cool. Do you not realize, priests of Malachi's day, that you live your lives in the presence of a holy God who demands awe, who demands fear, who demands honor? Do you not realize that? Church, do we not realize that? It is a strange providence that keeps us and protects us and our churches from the November 13th-like attacks in France. Strange providence. And only a fool could respond with anything but fear, but love, but honor, but awe of our great God and King. Your ancestors understood this. And so he goes into verse 6. And what we're going to see in verses 5 and 6, I see them kind of coupled together. He is going to describe how things used to be. That's what verses 5 and 6 are. Verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprighteousness, and he turned many from inequity. He walked with me in peace and uprighteousness. The term for uprighteousness in the original language, it, it refers to level ground. Level ground. Or to fairness. And it is the lack of fairness that is in view, especially as we we're going to see in verse 9, where the priests are apparently showing partiality to people. They're not being fair. Verses 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6 of this section of the day is how things used to be. And as we're going to see in verse 7, it's how things should be. That's what we're going to see in verse 7. But verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprighteousness, and he turned many from inequity. He was teaching true things. He was given good advice. He was given good counsel. And many people were actually turned from their inequity. I think the NIV says sin. By the wise counsel. By the wise instruction. That's how things were with your ancestors. Priest in Malachi's day. But then to verse 7. In case it's unclear. 
Because I know oftentimes the argument is, is well, that was, that was how it was in the Old Testament. That was how it was in, in olden days. But this is different now. We live in a different time now, so I can whatever I want to do. I often hear that type of response from people. And in case there's any confusion, Malachi is going to be very clear in verse 7. He says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. This isn't just how things used to be in verses 5 and 6. Verse 7, this is how things ought to be. Or, as my ESV says, this is how things should be. It should be like this. And the fact that it's not is pretty messed up. Unfortunately, many American Protestant churches today, this is not how things are. And like the priest of Malachi's day, there is a, a certain carelessness that has pervaded like a sickness into our churches, plagued many pastors, plagued many leaders, who it seems would rather not offend, not upset, the masses by discharging their duties, by guarding knowledge and teaching true instruction. They have, in many ways, abandoned their priestly obligations. This isn't just how things used to be, priest of Malachi's day. This is how things ought to be. This is how things should be. And as a result, both in the modern American Protestant church today, making an application there, and in the priest of Malachi's day, as a result of the failure to uphold verse 7, how things ought to be, how things should be, verse 8 has occurred. You have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So there it is out for us. Verses 5 and 6, it's how things used to be with your ancestors who honored me, who feared me, who obeyed me. Verse 7, this is how things should be. This is how things ought to be. Verse 8, this is how things are. And oh, by the way, how things are are not how things ought to be. They're not how things should be. And they're definitely not how things used to be. Does anybody have a problem with that? They should. God has a problem with that. You have turned aside from the way. And you know what? I'm thinking about this. People turning aside from the way. I'll make a couple applications here as we deviate from the text. This usually doesn't happen overnight. It's not like you just wake up today and you're like, you know what? Yeah, I'm not going to go to church anymore. Maybe some people, but normally it's much more gradual. Normally it's much more subtle. I see it a lot. We have a, a lot of young people people that come here between the ages of 18 and 22. I know there's a lot of undergrad students and, 
And I've been here, some one of the pastors, for almost two and a half years, and I'll notice it. I'll, I'll see a guy or a girl coming to church, loving Jesus, they get into a relationship, not that every relationship is like this, and then, and then after a while, it's, hey, where's so-and-so? I haven't seen him. Yeah, they haven't been here for a while. I mean, I, where are they? Are they doing okay? And it doesn't usually happen overnight. I get up in the morning and, man, I don't have a lot of time today. Oh, man, I'm rushed. How am I going to make up for that time? Oh, I know. Well, I'll just, I'll just cut the Bible reading out today then, and I'll have more time. Oh, man, I'm really, it's been a really busy week, so where am I going to get this time back from? Oh, I know what. I got that time slot reserved Sunday nights for church. I just cut that out, okay. Got that back. And then the next time you find yourself in that situation, what happened is a, is a precedent has started. But what did you do last time when you got into a jam? Well, the answer wasn't waking up 30 minutes earlier so you had time to read your Bible. The answer was, well, I'll just well, I'll cut that out, right? That's the answer. So then a precedent has happened. And now it's not just one day. It's like a week or two weeks or three weeks is the last time I've been in the Word. Or I can't remember the last time I've even been at church. Because we've created this precedence. Like this departure from the path that he speaks of in verse 8, but you have turned aside from the way. My guess is it didn't just happen overnight. It happened very gradually. As my favorite pastor, John Piper, says, he says, Satan is mainly about good things. The reason why is because you can stop the bad, you can see the bad things. Satan's mainly about good things. You can see the bad things and spot them for what they are. He's mainly about the good things to keep you from seeing the best thing. I don't know if that was happening here, but if I had to guess, this wasn't just a 180-degree turn that they've departed from this wayward, departed out of this wayward path. I'm guessing it happened gradually. It snuck in, and then before they know it, man, like many of us, I haven't even picked up my Bible in a month, or I haven't even been to church in, in wherever. Man, I, I, I haven't even been to small group or whatever it may be. It usually starts very gradually. But this text is talking about leaders and, and priests. So in staying with the context of the, of the text, I want to make an application for us, but this really is talking about priestly leaders. So I'll make another application to honor the text. When I make applications, I always think, all right, if I made this application, would Malachi say, yep, that's what I'm talking about, or no, that's a terrible example. I always try to, always think about, what, what would Malachi say right now? I think Malachi would say, okay, I'm not exactly, I'm talking more about leaders and people in this priestly position, so this is how I really saw it when I was thinking about the text. The Supreme Court makes its ruling this summer, as some of you know. Um, and I wasn't exactly surprised on its ruling to legalize gay marriage in all 50 states. I wasn't really surprised. In fact, um, there was two, th two reasons that came to mind that honestly, while I was disappointed, I really was able to, I think, cope real well. And the one reason is I, I, I take great comfort and great peace in knowing that our God is sovereign. That's not some abstract or vague term I throw around. You say, what does that even mean? Psalms 115.3 defines that really well. Psalms 115.3, the psalmist says, our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases to do, whatever he wills to do. No, he wasn't caught off guard by that. 
ruling this summer. I don't know why it would be part of his plan, but I know that he has a plan. I know that he is the shot caller. I know he is the quarterback who never throws an incomplete pass unless he means to. And still then he has a plan. So that brought me a lot of peace and a lot of comfort. And the second, because I know from studying church history that great revivals oftentimes start through the blood of martyrs through persecution of the church. I'm not using the ruling of the Supreme Court as a substitute for persecution. An attack on religious liberty? Maybe. At least we're definitely getting toward that point where the Supreme Court will say, listen, I'm not going to tell you what God you can worship. You can worship whatever God you want, but um, you will issue that marriage license. You worship whoever you want, but you are going to do that. You worship whatever God you want, but you will bake that cake. Or more recently in Houston, you worship whatever God you want, but you will refer to that little girl as a little boy, and you will call that little girl by the boy's name that her homosexual parents want. Or you can find another job. You worship whoever you want, but you will do those things. And so, I know that out of the woodwork in these situations, it forces many within the American Protestant Church to pick a side, especially those riding the fence, and that's what I'm getting at. For, I'm always, I don't just drop names for the sake of dropping names. Part of my job and my responsibility is to teach you accurately, to make you well-informed. You come here to learn the Bible. That's what you come here to do. My job is to teach the Bible, not to make you laugh or tell you stories about things not related to the Bible with no application of the Bible. So this summer, I noticed right away after this interview with a guy named T.D. Jakes, well-known pastor, and he says, well, my views on gay marriage are, they're, they're really evolving now, end quote. You can Google it. I made sure to make sure all my research was very prepared and, and accurate tonight. One of the benefits is it really separates the wheat from the chaff when we come into these situations, or probably more noted, uh, Hillsong Church. And, and we sang a Hillsong song tonight. Great music. Sings great, great songs. Over the summer, um, it became known that there was an openly homosexual couple engaged to be married, serving in a leadership position at their New York City campus. This article was rebutted with Pastor Brian Houston, who came and spoke at Liberty a few months ago, him saying, no, that's not actually accurate. They are no longer serving in that leadership position. Then another article came and said, well, that's true. They're not serving in that leadership position, but they're still serving and they're still members. And they're still engaged to be married to each other. Oh, that's right. That's what it made me think of. But you have turned aside from the way. You have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. Or literally, you've caused many people not to stumble, to, to sin 
Because you're giving terrible counsel. You're, you're, you're not teaching God's word the way it ought to be taught. And as a result, people are stumbling. You're actually causing people to sin. Within the context of that, this is what's happening. For those of you who've been here the last couple of weeks, you know what's happening. The people are coming. They're bringing sacrifices to God. This is the context of Malachi's day. And they're bringing really, really lame and shameful sacrifices as gifts to God. To be sacrificed on the altar as an act of worship. And the priest, they should have been saying, hey, you, you can't bring that. How come? Because it's missing like three of its legs. You can't bring that. I mean, this is what's happening. So we laugh, but that's what's happening in the story. And instead the priests say, yeah, whatever, go ahead. That's, that's literally what is happening in this story. They are causing people to stumble, to sin by their terrible counsel and terrible instruction. Joe and, and Jim, you guys want to get married? Yeah? Okay. You, you want to be members of this church? Okay. You want to serve in this church? Yeah, why not? Go ahead. You have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. And God is furious with them. People say, well, what would you do, Joe? It's one thing to, to say harsh things. This is what I would do. Okay? And we are a church at Lynchburg City Church that practices church discipline. That might be a weird idea or concept. You might not know what that is because many churches today don't practice church discipline. It's a very biblical thing. What we do do it here, and many of the reasons churches don't do it is because it's awkward or weird or uncomfortable. So what ends up happening is if you play golf with a pastor and something happens, they just sweep it under the rug. Or you give a lot of money to the church, yeah, yeah, we'll just we'll let that one go. That's showing partiality. But this is what I would, I, I would do. I was one, I would definitely start praying and asking Jesus for help and, and calling other pastors and, and getting advice. But I would probably start in that situation, like at the Hillsong Church. I'd probably start with just saying, hey, we love you. We love you. I'd start by saying, I want you to know first and foremost, I love you. God loves you. But he's not happy with this whatever this is, this unrepentant sin. And he, he loves you so much and he wants you to repent. He wants you to submit to his lordship. He wants you to turn from this. And I, I want to encourage you to do that. Like it, it's, I know this is awkward. I know this is weird. I don't, I don't want you to keep doing this, to keep doing this sin. I want you to turn from it. And I'm going to be there. I know this is hard. I'm going to be there to walk with you through this part of your life. But you've got to turn. You need to submit to the Lordship of Christ. You need to stop this sin in your life. And, and if you don't, if you don't, then it cannot be business as usual anymore. Well, what do you mean by that? Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, he says in verse 17, he views the church as the final court of appeals in matters of unrepentant sin. He says to treat them as a Gentile and as a tax collector. I'm not going to be buddy-buddy with you. You're not going to be hanging out, going to the golf course with me. We're not going to have that friendship like we, like we once did if, if you do not repent of this sin. 
You can come to church on Sunday night. I cannot knowingly serve you communion. I cannot knowingly serve you the sacraments. You can come here on Sunday night. You cannot come to small group. You cannot come to church fun activities. Why? Because God judges those outside the church and I am to purge the evil person from among us. The evil person who is in unrepentant sin. You say, man, that sounds really harsh. That's 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13 that I just quoted. And I'm going to lovingly call them to repent. That's what I think is the biblical solution. But they have caused many to stumble. They've caused many to stumble by the foolish counsel and instruction that they've given. They have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, verse 9. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but you show partiality, you show favoritism in the instruction that you're teaching. And that is unacceptable. You've corrupted this covenant The God established with Levi. Verses 5 and 6. How things used to be. Verse 7. How things ought to be. How things should be. Verse 8. How things are. And they are messed up. You've corrupted it. Literally, you have ruined it. This special covenant relationship. You've ruined it. You just made something so beautiful, just so ugly, and so awful. But the amazing thing in this story is we go back and look at verse 4 and the verses leading up to it. He says, if you don't listen to me, if you don't take these things to heart, I'm going to drop the hurt on you. And I'm saying this so that my covenant with Levi may stand. You've corrupted it. You've broken it. You've ruined it. But you haven't destroyed it yet. It is not beyond repair. That's good news. If you will only repent, if you will only hear what I'm saying, like I'm there, like a good father, like, like ready for you to come home to me. I'm ready to just wrap my arms around you because I love you so much. You've messed up so bad. But if you would just repent, if you would just turn and stop doing these things and listen to Malachi, my servant, then we could start anew. And I think perhaps the most encouraging thing is that the God who had this special, hear me out right now, hear me out right here, that this is probably the most encouraging thing. I want you to hear this, okay? Is that the God who had this special relationship, this special covenant relationship with Levi is the same God who we have this special new covenant relationship with today. And that is wonderful news. It's the same God, the same God that is saying these things. It's talking about this corrupted covenant. It's also the same God who's saying these things so that His covenant may stand with His people. That's the same God that we have the new covenant promises with through Christ if we will only turn from our sin, if we will only repent, if we will only submit to His Lordship. And there He is like a Father welcoming us back, desiring us to repent. It is part of His love. And it is great news. 
that our God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That should encourage you. As the band comes, I'd like to pray. Holy Father, we love you and we worship you and we praise you because you are God. And you could have just walked out. You could have just been done with this covenant with Levi. But you're not. But you weren't. And I think about all the times that we mess up and we drop the ball and we corrupt in our our own way this new covenant that we have with you, but you don't drop the ball. You don't just check out and walk away from us. Your love is pretty amazing. And so I pray that you would grant those in here a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. That they would learn the lessons from the priest of Malachi's day, from the, the great example we had from Phineas in Numbers 25, a guy who was willing to confront not only his people, but his own family of issues of sin. Oh, that you would make us a Phineas, that you would grant us a heart of repentance, and that we would just stand back and be blown away by this love, that even though the people corrupted this covenant, it's not destroyed. If only they would hear your words and take them to heart. So help us. As St. Augustine prayed so long ago, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Enable us to do the things that you tell us to do. Help us, Jesus. We love you. And I pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In your great name, King Jesus. Amen.